The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Central bank enforcement actions against banks have been ratcheting up in recent years, and now Wells Fargo has been hit with a sanction called unprecedented by Fed officials. After markets closed on Friday, Janet Yellen's final workday in office, the Fed announced a harsh new punishment for Wells Fargo, which has been involved in scandal after scandal. The Fed banned the bank from growing until it convinces authorities it's fixed its many problems. Yellen, speaking on CBS Sunday morning yesterday, cautioned against rolling back enforcement of banks. They are now much safer, much sounder, and much better at managing their risks. And it would be a grave mistake to roll that back. My guest is Robert Hockett, professor at Cornell Law School. Bob, how harsh and how unusual is this action against Wells Fargo? Well, hi, June. Thanks for having me on. Um, It's actually not as harsh as one might have thought. It's definitely unprecedented, and that's what's sort of interesting about this. It's unprecedented, I think, precisely because the regulators were trying to decide whether there's some sort of potent form of enforcement that nevertheless falls short of the much more severe uh, enforcement actions that the Fed could have taken. Describe what the action actually is. So essentially, it's a limitation uh, placed on the right of the institution to grow. And what that means is it's going to be limited as to the size of its asset portfolio until it convinces the Fed that it has taken appropriate action to rectify its internal governance and and, and law compliance uh, measures or programs. So essentially, what they're they're saying is, okay, Wells is sort of frozen at its current size. Um, Now, that's a punishment in the sense that, in two senses, I guess. On the one hand, banks typically do like to grow their assets. Uh, uh, portfolios, because, of course, that means that they're uh, standing to, to yield higher profits to their shareholders. In that sense, it hurts. But more importantly, I think it hurts because it gets a lot of attention, precisely uh, because it's an unusual form of sanction. And that means that the public is once again uh, paying close attention to a uh, repeat offender and to the fact that uh, Wells is a repeat offender. Major U.S. banks have bounced back from past crackdowns. Do you expect this to be any different? I'm sorry, is, is what? Major U.S. banks have bounced back from these crackdowns before, uh, J.P. Mm-hmm. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, etc. Do you expect mm-hmm. it to be any different for Wells Fargo? Oh. No, I, I actually don't. I mean, at least I don't expect it to be any different if they actually do uh, correct what's been going on internally. Uh, and it looks as though they're trying to do that. As you know, there's a major shuffle that's been underway on the board, and that is itself, uh, that's to say the Wells board, and that is itself uh, an attempt to sort of get a wrap on or get a get a grip on uh, its internal compliance problems and to sort of uh, impose uh, discipline uh, within the organization, which apparently has been rather difficult for the board uh, to do in the past. What else does it have to do Bob, in order to get to fix its problems? Well, one thing is to develop, typically with an outside consultant, 
uh, an effective form of internal compliance procedure. That can include hotlines or anonymous tip lines for employees to be able to report abuses that they see going on. Uh, it can uh, include uh, sort of heavier reporting requirements that higher-ups might place on those lower down to ensure that they're all complying with the law, any number of such things. And then the second thing is that it's typical to seek some kind of uh, endorsement of the measures that have been adopted from some outside so-called reputational intermediary, uh, which could, you know, could be any number of intermediaries, including uh, Standard & Poor's or, or Fitch or you name it. Um, and if the board, the Fed board, that is, uh, finally becomes satisfied uh, with the, the warrant of uh, reputational intermediaries, that the internal compliance procedures adopted by Wells are, are, are substantial and indeed likely to work, uh, that could indeed see a relaxation then of the, of the sanction. Looking forward, as far as other banks are concerned who are looking at this harsh penalty, President mm-hmm. Donald Trump has repeatedly said he wants to loosen constraints on the financial industry. So mm-hmm. does this harsh penalty signal a new reality, or is it Yellen's final salvo? I think it signifies just the same reality as we had before, to tell you the truth. Um, a couple couple reasons for that. The first is, as I mentioned earlier, it is possible for the regulators to impose much more difficult, much more onerous sanctions, including monetary fines or even imprisonment or regulatory sanctions against individual human beings who make decisions in an organization. And I note that uh, the Fed has not done anything quite like that uh, in connection uh, with Wells. So in that sense, it's not that unusual. It's also, I mean, it's not that, that harsh. Um, uh, and it doesn't really change. It's not a significant move away from where we were in the previous two or three years. For another thing, as you know, uh, Trump has suggested that while he wants to relax um, various regulatory requirements and the like, he has also been claiming that he wants the penalties to be harsh for those who uh, nevertheless violate what uh, rules uh, remain. Now, of course, we always have to take what Mr. Trump says with a grain of salt. He might say something different tomorrow. But there's no, I think, signal at this point that there's going to be some fundamental change in the way that we deal with banks the size of, of, of wells. This was a consent decree, so perhaps they had to give a little to get a little, and uh, that's why it wasn't as harsh as anticipated by you? Uh, it's, it's possibly the case. Um, you know, so, so the idea here is that, that typically if you can get the regulated entity to agree with whatever penalty or, or rectificatory measure has been uh, decided on by the regulator, that does make things easier for the regulator because, of course, it spares it the trouble of having to engage in litigation. But, of course, it also spares the litigated, I mean, sorry, the uh, regulated entity uh, from possible litigation expenses as well. So while it is sort of a give and take that arrives at a consent decree, it's probably worth keeping in mind that uh, both sides gain if they can avoid litigation, uh, which is to say that both sides gain if they can uh, reach an agreement uh, at, uh, as to some sort of uh, rectificatory measure. About 30 seconds. You can have a quick answer here. You mentioned criminal penalties, which we never see. Do you expect to see them in the coming years? I fear not. I don't think under the Trump administration we're likely to see anything um, in the way of criminal penalties, particularly given that we didn't see anything like that during the Obama years. So, a fortiori, you might say, if Obama was loath to do this, I suspect that Trump, who seems to be more friendly uh, to big bankers, uh, won't do it either. Thanks so much, Bob, as always. That's Robert Hockett, professor at Cornell Law School. 
House Intelligence Committee is holding a closed-door session at 5 p.m. to consider releasing the Democratic rebuttal memo to the Republican memo that alleges bias in the Russia investigation. President Donald Trump and some Republican allies are using the so-called Nunes memo to allege bias in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Several former intelligence officials have publicly criticized the memo drafted by the chair of the committee, Republican Devin Nunes. Here's former CIA Director Leon Panetta speaking on Fox News Sunday. I think in this instance, very frankly, that uh, the Nunes charges uh, against FISA, particularly without looking at the entire application, without talking to the judges who actually make these decisions, I think that's irresponsible. The Democratic counter memo was authored by California Representative Adam Schiff, the panel's top Democrat. Joining me is William Banks, professor at Syracuse University Law School. Bill, you've read the memo. What's your analysis? Well, I, I agree with what Mr. Panetta said just now, and I think it's a very unfortunate uh, turn of events for the investigation to have it may have the uh, elements of the investigation by uh, the Mueller team uh, revealed in this way. It's a uh, it's clearly partisan. It's an effort to protect uh, President Trump, and it you know it it compromises a valuable intelligence source that the Bureau had been working with. And it, it of course, is also very much a, a sort of a cherry-picked uh, gleaning of a few elements of a much larger FISA application. Tell us about the FISA courts and what it takes to get a surveillance on an American citizen. Yeah, it's important to remember, June, that the purpose of the FISA process is to collect foreign intelligence or counterintelligence. In this case, it was counterintelligence involving Carter Page. This is not a criminal process, so we don't expect the same Fourth Amendment protections for citizens that we would if a criminal uh, sanction or possible uh, jail could be forthcoming. Still, the process does do more to protect Americans than it does persons who are not from the United States. So the the uh, predicate, if you will, is still the same probable cause to believe that the target is an agent of foreign power, in this case, Russia. Uh, the thing that's different about U.S. persons in this regard is that none of the uh, none of the activities that are the basis for an order of surveillance could be based on protected First Amendment activities, and the uh, the process requires that they seek renewal of the authorization more frequently than they would have to if the target were not a U.S. person. So something I find difficult to understand is this memo is about Carter Page, who White House officials described as a peripheral member of a relatively peripheral advisory committee. And last December, White House attorney Don McGahn wrote to Page to cease saying he's a Trump advisor. And didn't the FBI have a lot more on Page? He was interviewed by them as early as 2013 as part of an investigation into a Russian spy ring. So shouldn't the FBI have had more information on him than the Steele dossier? They clearly did. And I think if the Democratic memo is released, we'll learn more about some of that other information. You know, the, the FISA application is a lengthy process that involves in, internal vetting inside the Department of Justice by numerous officials uh, 
lawyers and policy officials, and the application itself, when it's carried to the FISA court, would have been lengthy, I don't know, 50 pages, maybe more. So the Steele dossier would have been a very small part of a, of a larger package of materials. As you say, they've been looking at, at Steele, or at Page, rather, uh, for up to three years prior to this application. And, uh, of course, it's also important to remember, this was actually stated at the bottom of the, of the Nunes memo, that the investigation of the potential uh, for collusion between the Trump campaign and the uh, Russian interference was first investigated uh, concerning Papadopoulos, not Carter Page. So there was a prior uh, application that had already been reviewed. Now, we heard Leon Panetta say, you know, we shouldn't do this without talking to the judges. Judges don't normally explain their decisions to to people unless there's some kind of criminal process and, you know, they have to look into what the judge found. And so is that likely to happen, that a, one of the judges would come forward? Oh, it, it's, it's almost surely not going to happen. We don't even know which judges might have been involved in the Carter Page application, as the uh, as the materials reveal, the Page uh, request was renewed on two or three occasions. I forget the details now. And it's likely that on the first occasion and then on the renewals, there might have been a different judge involved each time. The judge wouldn't have been identified. The judge won't identify himself or herself now, and that's the way the process is supposed to work. So, Bill... Now, let's say the Democrats are allowed to come out with their memo. Is it good to have two dueling memos out there and uh, about the FBI's process? And is it dangerous to release the second memo? You know, I doubt that it's dangerous to release it. And at this point, it's about achieving sort of a partisan balance here. The best result is for no memos to have been released because it was a real affront to the integrity of the Department of Justice and the whole FISA process, and the entire intelligence community for that uh, matter. So I think the better thing would have been for, for there to be no memo. I think once there's a, a heavily partisan memo out, it's fair to, to have a rebuttal memo out. I, I think that uh, Representative Schiff and others would be very careful not to release uh, sensitive information uh, in, in the chance that their memo does come out. Now, Another part to this is that Senate Judiciary Chair Chuck Grassley is calling on the FBI to stop blocking the release of key portions of his memo that calls for a criminal investigation of Christopher Steele, which is the, who's the former F- British spy who compiled that dossier we know so much about. In about a minute, can you tell me what uh, Grassley is trying to accomplish? Uh, uh, it's very hard to know exactly what he's trying to accomplish. One of the things that we learned, unfortunately, uh, is that in, in releasing the Nunes memo, we now know that Steele was a, an FBI source uh, prior to uh, the, the so-called dossier and prior to the investigation of Carter Page. So in the context of the, of the larger investigation, one of the things that happened is that the Bureau was lost the source that had been using for foreign intelligence gathering for years. So I think coming out with more now, I think the, the, they've already lost steel and whatever value that he might have provided to the process earlier on. 
Well, we'll see how this plays out. And there are certainly different different parts of this now. It seems as if there, it's like a tree with the branches spreading. Thanks so much for being here, Bill. That's William Banks, professor at Syracuse University Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.